Good morning. So I feel a little bad because uh, we've just sang of God's holy ho- holiness, and now I'm, I'm going to take it down a notch. I think we'll get back up there in a minute, but last night I was uh, having dinner with some friends, mostly Christian friends, I would say. <laughs> Who were they? No, just kidding. Nobody here. Uh, and uh, somebody asked me, so what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, uh, circumcision. <laughs> and so there went the jokes. Okay, you know, I won't tell you all that was said, but there was something mentioned about uh, like visual aids. Are there any things like that? I said, no, we're good. And I said, uh, we're going to talk about circumcision of the heart. Oh, okay. So this morning we continue our study in the book of Romans. We're at the end of Romans chapter 2. Okay, so we've got 15 weeks, two chapters, cooking along. This is is, uh, part of the first section of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. He's leading his readers to an important conclusion. Uh, That conclusion is really summarized in chapter 3, verse 10. We haven't got there, but we've pointed to it. He's driving home the point that there is no one righteous, not even one. Paul's arguing that all people are unrighteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore all people, and he's dividing people into two groups, really Jews and Gentiles. All people, Jews and Gentiles, are, are, will come under the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Paul's purpose in showing the unrighteousness of all people is to show that all people need the gospel of Jesus Christ. For, for anyone to be saved from the wrath of God, they must believe. They must put their faith in the gospel. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's through the work of Christ, through his sacrificial death on the cross, that we can be made righteous before God, that we can be holy before God, trusting that the gospel of Jesus Christ alone has the power to save us from the wrath of God. Paul's showing that all people, Jew and Gentile, are unrighteous, so that all people, Jew and Gentile, see their need for the gospel of Jesus Christ, see their need for Jesus In chapter 1, just review, he showed the unrighteousness of the Gentile world, really the pagan Gentile world, how they dishonor God by rejecting him and replacing him with idols of their own making. And in chapter 2, his focus shifts to the unrighteousness of the Jewish world. Now for the Jew, he not only has to show their unrighteousness, their sinfulness, he must also address their false belief that because they're Jews, that they are somehow exempt from the judgment of God, from the wrath of God. And he does this in stages. We've looked at them in verses 1 through 5. He points out their religious hypocrisy. They judge the sin of the Gentiles while practicing sin themselves. And in verses 6 through 17, Paul deals with the false belief that because you're a Jew, you will not be judged for your sin. He states that God shows no partiality between Jews and Gentiles, that all people will be judged on the same standard. Then in Romans chapter 2, 17 through 24, that's what we looked at last week, if you were here, 
Paul addresses the false belief that because the Jews had received the law of God, not because they were keeping the law of God, but because they had received the law of God, that they would be saved, that they relied on and they boasted in the fact that God had given them the law. They were the people of the book. But Paul says they dishonor God by breaking the law that they're relying on. And therefore, like Gentiles, like the Gentiles, they too would face the judgment, the wrath of God. Now, in our passage for today, the end of Romans 25 through 29, chapter 2, the end of Romans 2, Paul moves from uh, one false belief to another. So the Jews not only relied on the, the fact that they had received the law for their salvation, they also re- relied on the practice of circumcision. God had instituted circumcision as a sign, as a, a symbol of his covenant with Abraham with Abraham and his descendants. In Genesis chapter 17, God says to Abraham, starting in verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations." Circumcision was to be this outward symbol of entering into the covenant that God had made with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. It showed that you were set apart from the rest of the nations, that that you belonged to the God of Abraham, to to the one true God. And therefore, it was an extremely important part of Jewish life, circumcision. It was given by God to Abraham and it was reaffirmed in the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 12, 3 states, And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Again, circumcision was symbolic, but it was an impre- extremely important symbol. You could, in a way, liken it in some ways to our symbol of, a, of the wedding ring. A wedding ring is an external symbol that you're married, that you belong to another, that you're taken that you're set apart for that one person. Circumcision was an external symbol that you are part of God's covenant people, the Jews. However, in the Jewish mind, physical circumcision had become more than symbolic. Long before Paul wrote Romans, it had become shrouded in in superstition even. Ancient rabbis formulated sayings such as, no circumcised Jewish man will see hell. And circumcision saves us from hell. Uh, In the Midrash, uh, which is an ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, it includes the statement, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised would be sent to hell. Abraham sits before the gate of hell and never allows any circumcised Israelite to enter. The Jews had come to believe that circumcision, this outward physical circumcision, in and of itself had the power uh, to save them from the wrath of God, to save them from hell. And so Paul, in Romans 2, 25-29, seeks to address and destroy this false belief. Because if they believe this, if they believe they're circumcised, then they will not see their need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he begins by pointing out the conditional value of circumcision. Verse 25, "For, for circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. 
Yes, circumcision, uh, the sign that you are part of God's covenant people has value. But there's a condition, an if. Circumcision only has value if you obey the law. For this external symbol to have value, uh, what it symbolizes, being part of, of God's covenant people, must be demonstrated. It must be seen through a life of obedience to God. If God is your God and you are his covenant people, then you will obey his law. Now we need to pause here for just a, a second and explore what Paul means by obey the law. We've talked about this before in our study of Romans. It's come up, so we won't spend a lot of time on it. But we need to understand what Paul is and what Paul is not saying. Some have said that he's talking about a a hypothetical, perfect obedience to the Mosaic law. This would mean that if you break the law at any point, at any time, which everyone does, then your circumcision has no value. But if we look quickly at the, at the beginning of chapter 3, that's what we'll be looking at next week, but let's, let's take a little quick preview. Chapter 3, verse 1 and part of verse 2. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what value, what, what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Next week, we'll look at, in more depth, at clear, uh, but clearly, Paul is saying that the God-given covenant of circumcision He's he's saying that this God-given covenant of circumcision uh, has value. There's some value there. So I don't believe that in verse 25, Paul's talking about a hypothetical perfect obedience to to the law that that would be impossible. Instead, I believe he's referring to a heartfelt, spirit-empowered obedience to God's law. Obedience that flows from being in relationship with God. Obedience that Paul already described in chapter 1, verse 5, where he says his mission is to, Paul's mission is to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul wants all to know that God places a high value on obedience, not as a means of salvation, but as a natural result of God's work in the life of those who put their faith in him. And this understanding of obedience will become more clear when we get to verses 28 and 29. But for now, I would ask that you trust that when Paul, in this context, speaks about one who obeys the law, he's not talking about a non-existent hypothetical person. Instead, he's talking about the faithful Jew who consistently obeys God. For their circumcision to have value, that external symbol reflects the reality of truly being part of God's chosen covenant people. So for the obedient Jew, circumcision has value. However, verse 25 continues, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. If you, Jew, break the law that God has given you through Moses, if you don't faithfully obey the law, then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It's it's as if you were never circumcised at all. The outward symbol reflects no inner reality. Therefore, it has no value. It would be like a person who, who wore a wedding ring but, but lived as if they were unmarried. The wedding ring symbolizing fidelity in marriage would be meaningless, of no value. And a Jew who does not faithfully obey God but instead continually breaks the law, he proves that he is no different than an uncircumcised Gentile. 
Therefore, his circumcision would be meaningless of no value. Paul seeking to demolish the, the Jewish confidence in their physical circumcision, showing that it has no value unless it's accompanied with faithful obedience to the law. Paul then continues his argument by showing the condemnation of the circumcised. The condemnation of the circumcised Jew follows uh, Paul's logic from verse 25. If circumcision is only of value to those who keep the law, then it it is faithful obedience to the law that is important, that is the priority, which means, verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? If an uncircumcised man, a, a Gentile, faithfully keeps the precepts, the requirements of the law, God will look at that Gentile obedience and count his uncircumcision as if it were circumcision. The Gentile, through his faithful obedience, will therefore be part of God's covenant people. The Gentile will become a true Jew. More on that later. The point is, actual faithful obedience to the law, not symbolic circumcision, is the key to being part of God's covenant people. Paul says something similar to the church in Corinth. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. God is much more concerned with actual obedience than with external symbols and signs. Paul then in verse 27 continues with these words. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Okay, this would have been uh, devastating to the Jews. Paul's saying that a physically uncircumcised person, a Gentile who keeps the law, will condemn those who have the written code, those who have the Mosaic law, those who are circumcised but break the law. Put simply, a Gentile who faithfully obeys the law, and again, if it's the first thing, if this is all hypothetical, this person doesn't exist, a Gentile who faithfully obeys the law will condemn a Jew who consistently breaks the law. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that Gentiles will sit in actual judgment over the Jews. Judgment is for God alone. What, what this word condemn means, what Paul's saying, is that the existence of the Gentiles, the existence of a, of a, of a life of an uncircumcised Gentile who's faithfully obeying the law, will stand as a rebuke to the faithless disobedience of a circumcised Jew. Because it's not circumcision that ultimately shows you're part of God's chosen covenant people. It's faithful obedience to God. External circumcision, being a physical descendant of Abraham, has no power to save anyone from the wrath of God. That's Paul's argument. And if we remember last week, Paul showed that, that being a Jew and receiving the law had no power to save. But in the Jewish mind, these two things covenant of circumcision, the fact that they had received the law, more than anything else, showed that they were God's chosen covenant people. And they believed that because of these external things, God would save them. He would exempt them from judgment. And Paul is saying, no, just receiving the law, just being circumcised is not the basis of God's salvation. It does not exempt you from judgment. Or put simply, being a Jew, a physical descendant of Abraham, will not save you. 
What saves you is faithful obedience to the Lord. Let me say that again. What saves you is faithful obedience to the Lord. Now, does that sound right? Maybe, maybe not, depending on what you understand that to mean. We'll hold on to that for a second. We'll get to it in verses 28 and 29, where Paul describes what it means to be a true Jew. And he does this by describing the character, the nature of genuine circumcision. He's been talking about external, physical circumcision. Now he's going to move to something different. And, and, And this is the real thing. This is the real deal. The Jews believed that because of who they were, because they had received the law, they had received this external sign of circumcision, that they would be saved. And Paul will, in a sense, uh, confirm that notion. Yes, being a Jew and being circumcised is key to your salvation. But the question is, who's a Jew? The question is, what is genuine circumcision? And in verse 28, Paul begins by describing who a a true Jew is not and what genuine circumcision is not. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So in here, this word Jew is talking about being part of God's chosen covenant people, being part of God's uh, group of saved people, I would even say. Paul's turning this whole Jewish circumcision thing on its head. You are not a true Jew. You are not chosen by God. You are not part of God's covenant people. You will not be saved just because you are an outward Jew. You were descended from Abraham. You were born into a Jewish family. Or just because you were outwardly, physically circumcised. The Jews were relying on their Jewish Abrahamic heritage to save them. John the Baptist, however, had made uh, many years prior to this, had said to a group of Jews, Do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Do not boast in or rely on your physical descendancy from Abraham. That's not what's important to God. And Paul later in, in Romans chapter 9 verse 6 would write, For no, excuse me, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Just because you are a physical descendant of Israel, of Jacob, of Abraham's grandson, does not mean you belong to Israel. It does not mean you're a true Jew. It does not mean you're a part of God's covenant people. So John and Paul agree being a descendant of Abraham, of Israel, and being circumcised does not guarantee your salvation. It does not make you a true Jew. So what does make you a true Jew? Verse 29, Paul answers that question. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Being a true Jew, being truly chosen by God to be part of his covenant people, being saved from the wrath of God, involves not externals, but internals. Circumcision is not physical. Well, there is a physical circumcision, but circumcision that matters is not physical, but spiritual. Genuine circumcision is a matter of the heart. Remember, external physical circumcision was a symbol of being part of God's covenant people. 
It was prescribed by the letter of the law. It was performed by a person when the child was eight days old. And it was wrong, and, and, and it wrongly became a, a duty that was thought to earn uh, salvation, exemption from God's judgment. But internal spiritual circumcision of the heart is performed by not man, but the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that works. It's the Spirit of God that does a work in a life. By God's grace, the Spirit changes, the, uh, transforms. He circumcises the heart. He marks the heart as, as one who is part of God's chosen covenant people, making true Jews, true Israelites, true chosen people of God. Now, it's important to note that Paul did not invent this idea of a circumcised heart. This concept would have been known to the Jews. They had heard it before because it's found in a number of Old Testament passages. Here are a few examples. Speaking about uh, sinful, disobedient Jews, Leviticus 26.41 says, If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and, and they make amends for their iniquity. The point there is, is, is uh, there's repentance involved, but an uncircumcised heart is one that is full of iniquity. Having an uncircumcised heart meant you were being disobedient to God. That you were rebelling against, sinning against God. We see that also in Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 25. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Notice that Israel is lumped in, Israel and Judah is lumped in with all these other other sinful, uncircumcised nations to receive the judgment of God. Why? Because they, their heart was uncircumcised. They, like all the nations around them, were rejecting and rebelling against God. They were disobedient to the Lord. So these are examples of, of an uncircumcised or a disobedient heart. But in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, we read uh, what having a circumcised heart will result in. What does it look like when your heart is circumcised? But before we read it, let me see if we can guess what it says. Don't put it up, mother dear. Uh, If having an uncircumcised heart means you're living in disobedience to God, then what does it mean to have a circumcised heart? You're living in faithful obedience to God. And this is amazing. And it brings us full circle with regards to what we talked about earlier. To what Paul meant means by obeying the law. To what I meant when I said we are saved by faithful obedience to the, law, to the Lord. Listen to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Notice again, uh, we've already seen the Spirit circumcises the heart. Now it's the Lord does the circumcising of the heart. And, and what's the purpose, the purpose of this circumcision? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That you may not face judgment. That you may receive even eternal life. Now let me ask a question. What did Jesus say? was the first and the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
when he was asked this question, uh, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You see, when the Spirit of God circumcises a person's heart, he is enabling that person to actually love God. We, we can't do it. We don't love God naturally. It's not natural for us. It's natural for us to love us and to love what we want. But the Spirit comes in and he does a work. He circumcises our heart and enables us to love God. He's enabling us to obey the greatest commandment. And it's when we love God that we seek to faithfully obey his commandments. Faithfully obey his commandments. Not from a sense of duty. Not to earn salvation. We obey his commandments, his law, because of our love for him. Yes, obedience to the law involved for the Jews, a physical descendants of Abraham being physically circumcised. But it also, more importantly, involves for Jews and Gentiles an internal spirit-driven transformation, a circumcision of the heart that always results, that always results in faithful obedience to the Lord. Think of it this way. Obedience is sort of seen uh, by the things we do. We obey. We, we go out and obey. Or maybe the things we don't do. But obedience ultimately always comes, originates from the heart. And therefore, for us to truly obey the Lord, it's our heart that must be changed. It's our heart that must be transformed. From, transformed. Our heart that must be circumcised. Pastor Tim Keller said this, you have a circumcised heart when what you ought to do and what you want to do are the same. Pleasure and duty are the same. And it's that circumcision of the heart by the Spirit of God that makes us true Jews, that saves us. It creates an internal change that causes us to love the Lord. And it enables us in the power of the Spirit to want to, to take pleasure in obeying His law. This is confirmed by what Paul says, how he ends that same verse, Romans 2, 29. But a Jew is, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Something happens when the Spirit circumcises a heart. His praise, the praise of the person uh, who's circumcised is not from man, but from God. As a result of our transformation, our circumcision of our heart, we become new creatures in Christ. We're changed. We no longer seek the praise of men. We no longer seek to please men. We no longer seek to engage in the sinful pursuits of this world. But instead, by the power of the Spirit, we long we long for the praise of God. Our pleasure is in his praises. And his praise comes to those who love him and who live in obedience to him. So now that we have the, the full picture, I think, let me summarize what we've seen in, in these verses, Romans 2, 25 to 29. Paul's showing his Jewish brethren the folly of relying on external physical circumcision. That external circumcision is of no value to those who do not faithfully obey the law. That whether you're circumcised or not, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, God is concerned with your heartfelt, spirit-empowered obedience, not your physical circumcision. 
Paul then makes it clear how one achieves that heartfelt, spirit-empowered obedience. It doesn't come uh, based on being a descendant of Abraham and being externally circumcised. It comes to those whose heart has been circumcised by the Spirit of God. And Paul calls these people true Jews. Being a true Jew is a matter of the heart. Circumcision of the heart by the Spirit makes you a true Jew. Makes you a true part of God's chosen covenant people and results in a transformed life, a life of loving God, of rejecting the praise of men and and pursuing through faithful obedience the praise of God. The person who has the circumcised heart uh, longs to obey God, to hear God say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Therefore, when I said, uh, therefore, when I said it's faithful obedience that saves, what I mean is it, putting your faith in God to save results in a circumcised heart that obeys. The faithful obedience. There, the first step is putting your faith in God. And this results in a circumcised heart. The Spirit circumcising your heart. That's seen. And what, what results from that is obedience. Now, even though uh, the purpose of this section of Romans is to show the unrighteousness of the Jewish world, to show that, that Jews need the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are also, uh, I think, some great and powerful implications for us as Christians. Hopefully, you've, you've seen them, but let me, let me emphasize three. Sorry, uh, in your notes, if you're taking notes, if you're using the notes, I left all that blank because... I printed before I got to this. Okay, sorry. So uh, there's going to be notes up there, and you can jot them down as you like. So I would say the first implication of what we've just seen for us as Christians is a warning from the Jews. A warning that we not be like the Jews who believed that they were saved by external physical circumcision. Because as Christians, there are many external things that we might that our mind might go to, to think, to rely on for our salvation. Probably the one that's the most similar uh, to circumcision is baptism in the life of a Christian. Some Christians believe wrongly that being baptized saves or is necessary for salvation. But baptism, even though it's important and commanded and symbolic of our identification with Jesus Christ who, who died for our sins and rose from the dead, symbolizing Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism is of no value, absolutely no value, if it does not reflect the reality of an internally changed life, a relationship with Christ, a circumcised heart. Now, even though baptism is the most obvious example, The same thing applies to all external things that identify us as Christians. Uh, Carrying around a Bible, reading your Bible, memorizing Scripture, praying in public, taking communion, going to church, even sharing our faith. All of these and more are good and wonderful and like circumcision, commanded. But none of these should be relied on as a means of salvation or earning our salvation. These things are a result of our salvation. These are the obedience. We can't rely on the works. We have to rely on the faith. 
But with the faith comes the obedience. None of these things are of any value unless they're a reflection of an internal change that's taken place by God's Spirit in your life. None of these are of value unless they flow from a relationship, a faith-based relationship with Jesus Christ. Unless they are the fruit of a, of a circumcised heart. So be warned. If you're relying on anything, on any external thing or action for your salvation, uh, all I can say is knock it off. Call on the Lord. Trust in Christ. Receive from Him a circumcised heart that you might begin a process of faithful obedience to the Lord. So first, a warning from the Jews. Second implication, rejoice. Rejoice, Christian, that you are a true Jew. We can rejoice that we as Gentile Christians are true Jews. When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, when we become part of God's chosen covenant people, when we trust in Christ's sacrificial death for the forgiveness of our sins, when we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes, we're saved from the wrath of God, but we're also adopted into the family of God. We're, we're, those, we're grafted in, Scripture says, to the vine, we're, we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit that then circumcises our heart. It's the Spirit that enables us to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and soul and mind and strength. It's the Spirit that changes, internally transforms us into the people who love God. And who out of our love for God can overcome our sin and faithfully obey the Lord. Therefore, Christian, rejoice because you're a true Jew. You're part of God's covenant, chosen people. And that leads to our final implication, and that is live as a true Jew. Live as a true Jew. The true Jew is the one who has the circumcised heart, who lives in faithful obedience. Therefore, we must submit, submit to and live in faithful obedience to the Lord. We must rely on the Spirit to continue His work in our lives. Yes, if you're a Christian, a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you're a true Jew. Your heart has been circumcised. Paul wrote to the Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, In Him, in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. If you're in Christ, then Christ has circumcised your heart. But we must daily choose to live in that circumcision. There's one final verse I'd like to leave you with. Uh, It's Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Don't go there yet. Sorry. Remember uh, in Romans 2, 28, and in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, and now in Colossians 2, 11, we read that, It is the Spirit, it is the Lord your God, and it is Christ who circumcises your heart. The the whole Trinity is involved in transforming, in circumcising, in changing, in in giving you, as other places say, giving you that new heart, uh, of removing that heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. All of that is truly a work of God. But in Deuteronomy chapter 10, the author, Moses, is telling the, uh, Israel 
of God's great love for them. How he chose them to be his people. And he's calling them, he's calling them to, for their own sake, this is what's good for you guys, keep his commandments. And in verse 16, God commands, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Yes, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit must do that initial work of circumcision in our lives. It's through the power of God that we're transformed, that we can love Him. But then as we seek to walk in the reality of our circumcision, when we who continue in, who are prone to wander, or prone to sin, when we find ourselves stubbornly disobeying the Lord who circumcised our heart, we must, we must circumcise our hearts. And I believe what that means is we must stop stubbornly resisting the Lord. Again, it's the Lord that will do the work, but we can resist it. He will continue to circumcise. He'll continue to transform, but we can resist. We must open our heart to him. We must submit to his will and his word. We must repent of our sins and in the power of the Spirit seek to love and obey the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We must seek our satisfaction and our joy in the Lord. We must fight to make God, God-given circumcision, uh, his transformation of us, uh, of our hearts, a reality in our daily lives. We must fight to, to be true Jews. So that, so that as Tim Keller said, what you ought to do and what you want to do are the same. Pleasure and duty are the same. Wouldn't that be awesome? If that's how you felt most of the time. Man, this is just awesome. I'm loving this obeying the Lord. It's given me joy and satisfaction and pleasure. That, that, my fellow Christians, is what we're shooting for. That's the goal. That's what we're about. That's what we're seeking. That's what we should be longing for and fighting for and seeking after and praying for. A life lived in the reality of a circumcised heart. A life that seeks the praise of God, not men. A life of faithful obedience to an awesome God. A life in which your internal heart circumcision has value because it's seen in the external faithful obedience to the Lord. And that's what I'd like to pray for us this morning as we conclude our service. That we would be, that we would live uh, as true Jews. That we would live in the reality of a circumcised heart. That we would live in faithful obedience to the Lord. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, thank you for your work in our lives. Your work in our hearts. your, Your willingness to transform and change and circumcise our hearts. To give us a new heart. To remove our our heart of stone, our heart that is so prone to wander, so prone to sin, so prone to selfishness to do our own thing, Lord, and and replace it with the heart of flesh. Circumcise our hearts, Father. Enable us, empower us by the power of your Spirit to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Transform us into people Lord, people who, who as we obey, as we follow after you, Lord, that, that we are overwhelmed with joy and pleasure because we know uh, it, it's, 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 it's love for you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.